morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Jesus, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, What is that to us? See, see to it yourself. And throwing down the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was the field what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of them, on whom a price has been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as a border offering. This is the word of the Lord. Good if you can have uh, your Bibles open uh, at that passage in Matthew chapter 27, and uh, we're going to go through that uh, mostly this morning. Uh, uh, welcome also to, to Bonnie. Uh, Bonnie hasn't been able to join us for a long time, but uh, it's good to uh, have you back, Bonnie. And uh, your phone rang uh, just before we read the Bible to alert us to the fact that we were doing something important, so well, well done. <laughs> Um, let me lead us in prayer, and uh, we're going to uh, have a look at this passage. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, gathering us together this morning around your word, and uh, we pray, Father, that um, you would um, help us to humble ourselves before the things that you say to us, and that your spirit will teach us this morning and uh, show us how to live as disciples of your Son, our Lord Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen. Uh, well, friends, uh, many of you will have heard the story of Arthur Conan Doyle, who uh, was the author of the Sherlock Holmes series. Um, apparently, Arthur Conan Doyle was a bit of a prankster, and so uh, you might have heard this story where um, he... Played a joke on 12 of his closest friends. Uh, what he did was he sent a, a telegram to each of these 12 friends um, with a message. And uh, on each telegram, the message was Flee, all has been discovered. Flee, all has been discovered. And the story goes that when his friends received this message and opened the telegram, Every single one of them fled the country within 24 hours. Now, uh, I'm not sure whether this is a true story or uh, one of those urban legends that uh, have kind of, uh, you know, um, come about. But the simple fact that it is believable suggests that many people struggle with guilty consciences. Now, is that true? Uh, if someone were to say to you and me, I know what you have done. I know everything. And I'm going to 
doesn't reveal at all to the public. I wonder whether we also would flee from where we are. For we all have secrets that we don't want others to know about, don't we? And often we have guilty consciences that gnaw away at us day after day. But what do you and I do with our guilty consciences? What do we do with our guilty consciences? Well, uh, we've been working our way through the final section of Matthew's Gospel for a while now. And uh, uh, as, we've worked out the, uh, as we've worked our way through these final chapters, we've seen the guilt of certain people who have been keen to see Jesus go to his death. Uh, we've seen, for example, uh, the, uh, the chief priests and the elders of the people who have been guilty of plotting uh, to put Jesus to death. Uh, we've seen Judas, one of his closest friends, guilty of betraying Jesus with a kiss. And uh, we've seen the chief priests and the elders of the people guilty of sentencing Jesus to death um, at the Jewish trial, if you remember, before the Sanhedrin, where they sentenced Jesus to death under the false charge of blasphemy. But in today's passage, you can see that the chief priests and elders are continuing to do all that they can to send Jesus to his death, to to see out their plan to kill Jesus and see him brought to an end. And so you see there in uh, chapter 27, verse 1, don't you? Chapter 27, verse 1, you see the religious leaders taking counsel and meeting together, plotting how they might execute Jesus. And in verse 2, you can see that what they do is they bind him and they lead him away to hand him over to the Roman governor called Pontius Pilate. Uh, why do they do this? Why do they take this step? Well, uh, you might know that at this time, um, the, uh, the land of Israel, Palestine, was under the rule of the Romans. And so the Jews actually had no authority to put anyone to death. In order to put anyone to death at that time, you had to go through the Roman courts, uh, which is what they want to do here. However, before Matthew tells us about the Roman trial of Jesus before Pontius Pilate, uh, you can see there that he tells us about Judas, who, uh, if you remember, was the one who betrayed Jesus in the first place by handing him over uh, to the religious authorities for 30 pieces of silver. Uh, now, Judas is obviously not a very pleasant character. Uh, no one likes a traitor, you know. I mean, you don't see many parents naming their baby boys Judas these days, do you? Um, I've noticed lots of heavy metal bands um, have the word Judas in it, but uh, no one wants to, you know, their child to grow up like him. But I want you to notice here that Judas deeply regrets what he has done. It seems that his guilty conscience has caught up with him. And so in verse 3, we are told that he changes his mind and he seeks to make restitution. He even brings back the money that he took, the 30 pieces of silver, um, and uh, tries to give it back to the chief priests and the elders of the people. In verse 4, he even confesses his guilt to them. He says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. 
friends, here's the tragedy of it all. When Judas is brushed off by the chief priests and elders, he's so, so ridden with his own guilt that he decides to end his own life. Things escalate very quickly in verse 5, doesn't it? Uh, Judas, after he's brushed off by the chief priests and elders, throws the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, uh, the blood money into the temple, and he rushes out, and in his great despair, he ends up committing suicide by hanging himself. Now, you've got to sympathize with Judas here, don't you? I mean, he realizes that he's made a terrible mistake in betraying Jesus, and it seems that he feels this horrible regret over what he has done. In many ways, his response at this point is very similar to the Apostle Peter's that we saw last week, where we saw him weeping bitterly after realizing the gravity of his sin in denying Jesus in the face of pressure. But I want you to see very clearly here that there is a big difference between Peter and Judas. What is that difference? Well, the difference is that while Peter later rushes to Jesus with his guilt and is forgiven of his sin and restored in his relationship with Jesus, uh, Judas doesn't go to Jesus here. But he goes to the chief priests. And when the chief priests refuse to to alleviate him of, of his guilt, well, he carries the guilt himself, which leads to the despair of suicide and the judgment of God in hell. Uh, remember, Jesus is the one who pronounced the woe over Judas's life uh, back in chapter 26, verse 24, which is a sign of God's impending judgment uh, on the character of Judas. In other words, friends, whilst Judas experiences deep regret for his sin, what he does here is not a genuine repentance that leads to forgiveness and life. Now, if you don't know what repentance in the Bible means, uh, it just means doing a U-turn, doesn't it? Uh, if you want to use a train illustration, uh, it, it's like, you know, before you repent, you are uh, on a train heading the wrong way, uh, away from Jesus and away from his ways. But when you realize the error of your way, uh, well, you get off that train and you kind of board the Jesus train, so to speak. You get on this new train, which goes in the opposite direction towards Jesus, and you seek forgiveness in him. And as you resolve to put your old life behind and live a new life following him. That's what repentance is, isn't it? But here, you see the great tragedy is that whilst Judas gets off the train, so to speak, well, he doesn't get on the new train. He doesn't get on the Jesus train. He doesn't seek forgiveness from the only one who can provide forgiveness for him and relieve him of his guilt. 
brother, he goes to the chief priests who can do nothing. And in the end, he only goes to himself. And not knowing what to do with that guilt, it ends in self-condemnation and despair as he takes his own life. Now, what are we to make of this? Well, uh, I think this passage shows us that merely feeling sorry for our sins is not genuine repentance that leads to forgiveness and new life. It's very easy to feel sorry for our sins, isn't it? But never repent. Just like Judas, I've known many people who sell out on Jesus for money or career or whatever the 30 pieces of silver might be for them. Things that are precious to them. And it's often the case that they feel very sorry for what they have done and are continuing to do, but they never get on the Jesus train, you see. They never seem to go to Jesus genuinely for forgiveness and resolve to leave that old life behind, to live a life following Him. And God would say, What a tragedy that really is. What a tragedy to simply feel sorry, but trade in forgiveness and eternal life for 30 pieces of silver. Is that you this morning? If that is you, then I want you to see in Judas a big warning sign from God. Repent. Repent today before you go past the point of conversion. But what are we to make of Judas's suicide here? Uh, I'm guessing that there are very few people in this room uh, who have not been affected in some way or another from the tragedy of suicide. Uh, some of us have known the trauma of having people who are close to us from suicide. Others of us have known of people um, who have committed suicide. Uh, indeed, our church has not been immune to people who, who we have loved as a church family uh, leading us uh, through the committing of suicide. However, while suicide is always sinful and assisting in suicide is always wrong, because God is the only one with the authority to give life and to take life. Now, I just want to stress that suicide is not the unforgivable sin. Now, I think it's important to say that because passages like this one have often been used by Christians to argue that suicide is simply unforgivable and uh, it is the final act of rebellion that a person can take which will lead to condemnation from God. But here, it's clear that when Jesus pronounces a woe on Judas' life, way back in chapter 26, he does it not because of Judas's suicide, but because of his unrepentant betrayal of Jesus. Now, suicide is very complex. 
Often those who commit suicide are affected by depression or medication or a whole range of other factors so that they may not be completely in control of their faculties. And so it is not unforgivable for the person who has put their faith in Jesus in their heart. Now, now friends, if we feel a measure of sympathy for Judas, there is a group of people in this passage for whom it is very difficult to feel any sympathy for this man. Uh, and that is the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now, notice the hypocrisy of these religious leaders. You know, when Judas throws the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, they are so concerned not to uh, put that money into the temple bank account because they call it blood money. It is tainted by somebody who has blood on their hands in betraying an innocent man and sending him to his death. Uh, that's fine, of course. I mean, it would be a bit like, you know, if a mafia boss came into our church and uh, offered to donate a million dollars to Enfield and Strathfield Anglican Church, uh, I would hope that we would not accept that money for the same reasons. But the problem is that while these people are concerned about their outward piety, well, they still refuse to change their minds about Jesus, don't they? In actual fact, even as they acknowledge that this, uh, this money is blood money, the irony is that they themselves were the ones who had started this whole process. They were the ones who were complicit in orchestrating and sending God's innocent Messiah to his death on false charges. Uh, you might know that the word hypocrite comes from the Greek word for actor. Now, did you know that? The word hypocrite uh, is just the Greek word for actor. Uh, in, in ancient Greece, if you went to the theatre, uh, you would find actors who wore masks um, to play their part or play their role um, in a play. And uh, that's what hypocrisy is, isn't it? It's uh, putting on a mask um, and playing a public role so that you play your part in public, even though you are a very different person inside. It's about looking religiously pious on the outside to the applause of people, but deep inside being opposed to the reign of Jesus in our lives. Uh, that's what the chief priests and elders of the people are like here, isn't it? But it's actually much worse than that in this passage. For ask yourself, who were these chief priests? In fact, who were the priests in Israel? If you know uh, the Old Testament, you will know that they were the ones who were meant to serve God in the temple. And what was their function? Well, they were to serve as mediators between a sinful people and a holy God. They were the ones who were meant to deal gently with sinful people who came to them with their guilt so that 
that could point them to a merciful God who could forgive them and restore them by His grace and mercy. And they did it by offering sacrifices on, the, on, on behalf of the people that they served. But here in this passage, we have this guilt-ridden person in Judas coming to the chief priests, willing to make restitution and confessing his sin before them. And what do they do? Well, they say in verse 4, what is that to us? It's not my problem, they say. What do you mean it's not your problem? You are the chief priests of Israel. It is your problem to help people who are guilty. It is your big problem to deal with guilt-ridden sinners and point them to the grace and mercy of God. It's astonishing, isn't it? It's not our problem, they say. You go and deal with your guilt yourself. Even though they were priests. Now, uh, it would be very easy for us, I think, to take a passage like this and uh, see the hypocrisy of the religious leaders of Israel and kind of, you know, beat, beat ourselves over the head because of the hypocrisy that we see in our own lives. Is that true? It is true, isn't it, that often our exterior lives can be very different to our interior lives and what we think about and how we act. But I think a better application of this passage is to see that just like the hypocrisy of the religious establishment of Jesus' day, in seeking to look outwardly pious and yet rejecting God's Messiah. There are many religious leaders in our own day who may look outwardly pious but who reject Jesus and point people away from the grace and mercy of God. Friends, beware of so-called Christian leaders who stand in their long, flowing robes looking pious on the outside, but, are, but inside are rebellious against Jesus and point people away from him. Beware of leaders who preach love, but who do not preach Jesus. Beware of leaders who stand for the sexual morality of the world, but who pay no attention to what Jesus says about sexual morality in his words. Beware of leaders who preach social justice but do not warn you against the justice of God that is coming on the day of judgment, urging you to repent and put your trust in the death and resurrection of Jesus as your only hope of being saved from God's wrath. Beware, for there are many like these. Some are even Anglican bishops and leaders who are outwardly pious and yet inwardly ravenous wolves who will lead you away from Jesus as the source of your salvation. Beware. Of 
friends, uh, in the final part of our passage this morning, uh, the tragedy of Judas ends with the purchase of a grave site in Emmaus. Uh, you can see it there in verse 7 that after Jesus takes his, uh, sorry, after Judas takes his own life, the chief priests and elders of the people take the 30 pieces of silver uh, to purchase the potter's field to be used as a burial place for strangers, uh, a burial place for strangers, which ominously is referred to as the field of blood. Further, Matthew tells us that even this was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And so you can see there in verse 9 that Matthew quotes from Jeremiah uh, these words. Verse 9, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, friends, if you are a careful reader of the Bible, you might have picked up a problem here. For this particular quote does not actually come from the prophet Jeremiah. Did you notice that? Rather, it's a quote that sounds more like a passage from the prophet Zechariah, which we had uh, read out to us this morning by Becky. Uh, specifically, in Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13, it says these words, Zechariah chapter 11, verse 13. It says, Then the Lord said to me, Throw it to the potter, the lordly price at which I was priced by them. And so I took the 30 pieces of silver and threw them into the house of the Lord to the potter. Now, obviously, uh, there are some close sort of um, similarities between this quote in Zechariah and the, the quote in, in Matthew's Gospel, uh, namely the 30 pieces of silver and the reference to the money being paid to a potter uh, for his land. But it's not a word-for-word quote, is it? And what Matthew quotes is certainly not something that is found uh, explicitly in Jeremiah either as uh, Matthew seems to suggest. So, uh, what is actually going on here? Is Matthew confusing his prophets, quoting Zechariah but thinking it's Jeremiah? Uh, Well, uh, here's uh, what I think, friends. Uh, In the New Testament, it's not uncommon for the biblical writers to kind of do a bit of a a mashup of different Old Testament prophecies. Um, you know, it's a bit of a trend these days to uh, mash up popular songs, isn't it? Uh, have you heard uh, a mash up uh, song where uh, they take a popular song, uh, they take the music for a popular song, and then they superimpose on top of that another popular song? so that when you hear the song, you actually hear two different songs being played. Uh, And I think uh, that's what the New Testament writers sometimes do with Old Testament prophecy. Uh, They mash up multiple Old Testament prophecies, and then what they do is they usually attribute that mashed up prophecy to uh, the more well-known prophet. 
Uh, so I'll give you an example. Uh, could you turn with me to Mark chapter 1? Uh, just turn over with me a few pages forward uh, to Mark chapter 1. And uh, have a look at the first few verses there in Mark chapter 1. Um, you can see there that in verses 2 and 3, uh, Mark gives us a quote, doesn't he? But uh, this quote is not just one quote from the Old Testament, but it's actually a mashed up version that is drawn from Exodus chapter 23, Malachi chapter 3, and Isaiah chapter 40. But you can see there that uh, in verse 2 that Mark attributes this quote not to all of the prophets, but to the most well-known one out of those three, uh, which is the prophet Isaiah. He's the lead singer, if you like, uh, of, of this quote. And so if you come back with me to Matthew, uh, what I think is going on in this passage is that Matthew is mashing up two different Old Testament prophecies. Uh, the first prophecy uh, actually comes from Jeremiah chapter 19, and the second prophecy, as we've seen, comes from Zechariah chapter 11. Uh, now, we obviously won't have time this morning to work our way through uh, these whole chapters in a great amount of detail. And so, I've actually given you a sheet of paper uh, in your outlines where I've kind of summarized those two chapters, one from Jeremiah and one from Zechariah. And if you're joining us on Zoom, um, I think somebody's going to post up uh, that uh, summary in uh, the chat function. And so hopefully you can, you can grab that summary and have a look at it. And uh, if you have a look at that page, what you will see is that there is a bit of a pattern uh, in, in these chapters. Uh, firstly, both these prophecies are an indictment against the leaders of Israel who have become corrupt in shedding innocent blood. Secondly, uh, both these prophecies hold the whole nation of Israel responsible for the shedding of innocent blood because it's not only the leaders, but the people themselves have become complicit in the corruption of the leaders. Um, thirdly, both these chapters prophesy God's judgment on the nation of Israel because of their sin. And you see it in, in graphic images of a mass grave, dead bodies everywhere, in a way that defiles the land of Israel. And finally, uh, both these prophecies have a sign of something that is broken. Uh, in Jeremiah, the thing that is broken is, uh, is a, uh, a piece of pottery or a flask that is broken uh, to symbolize the judgment of God who will break the people. And in Zechariah, a staff is broken to symbolize that God is breaking his covenant or his relationship with his people. Now, friends, this is exactly what we see happening in Matthew's Gospel, you see. The leaders of Israel, in the chief priests and the elders of the people, have become corrupt in plotting to shed the innocent blood of Jesus, God's Messiah. Uh, the people themselves become complicit in this, and you can see that in Judas, first of all, but you also see it later on, because if you just flip 
forward with me to chapter 27, verse 25. Have a look at chapter 27, verse 25. Uh, you can see there that the whole people of Israel implicate themselves by calling for Jesus' innocent blood. They cry out, His blood be on us and our children. And further, you see the ominous threat of God's judgment in that the 30 pieces of silver are used to purchase a mass grave. And finally, you have a sign of something broken, which comes a bit later in the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. And yet the astonishing thing in Matthew is that in this sign, the broken body of Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection to new life, there is actually hope for those who are under the judgment of God. For if you turn to chapter 27, verse 53, chapter 27, verse 53, you can see there that Jesus' death and resurrection strangely results in some of the holy people of Israel coming out of their graves and entering into the holy city of God. You see that? In other words, it is through the death and resurrection of Jesus that guilty sinners can have a future that leads not to a mass grave, but to a coming out of the grave to dwell with God in his holy city. You see, this is the good news of the gospel, isn't it? For in many ways, we are just as guilty before God as those we see in our passage today. How many of us have sold out on Jesus by chasing money or career or whatever represents 30 pieces of silver for us? Whilst we were not there to put Jesus to death on the cross, how many of us are just like the chief priests and elders of the people who want to eliminate Jesus from our thoughts and from our lives because we also are afraid of giving Jesus full reign over our lives? And listen to what the late John Stott says in his classic book called The Cross of Christ. He says these words, he says, For ultimately, what sent Jesus to the cross was neither the greed of Judas, nor the envy of the priests, nor the vacillating cowardice of Pilate, but our own greed, our own envy, our own cowardice, and our own Astonishingly good news that comes from God in this passage to us this morning is that if we take our guilt to Jesus, we can be forgiven, and our future will not end with a mass grave, but with a rising from the grave to resurrected life in the holy city of God. I don't know what 
of you at the moment. For some of us, we feel the guilt of sin very acutely and incessantly in our lives, don't we? Others of us may not feel guilty feelings very often, even though we are guilty of sin against God. But whatever the case may be, do not feel just sorrow like the person of Judas. But take your guilt to Jesus, for in him you will find a Savior who is willing to forgive you and who is in the business of taking guilty sinners from the grave to the glory of heaven itself. Will you go to Jesus this morning taking to him all your guilt and all your shame, all my guilt, all my shame. Trusting that at the cross he died for guilty sins like us. Taking the punishment for our sins so that there would be no more guilt and no more shame remaining in our lives. Will you go to him and have that tragedy of Judas who felt such terrible remorse but failed to turn to Jesus, we ask that you would help us not to make the same mistake. Help us not only to feel sorry for our sins and wallow in them, but to turn to Jesus, putting our trust in his death on the cross for our sins so that we might have the burden of guilt Father, we thank you so much that you sent your Son into this world to save and to redeem guilty sinners like us. So help us to turn to him this morning and to live a new life, joyful obedience and service of our God.